we started out in Ephesians a few months ago, uh, in Ephesians 1, which is all about your new Christian identity. If you remember back, there's this incredible amount of promises given to us about who we are in Jesus Christ. And now Paul is shifting in, in chapter 4, and Mark talked about this, and I talked about it last week. In the first part of chapter 4, he says that living out of your new identity means that you need to be united as a congregation. That we have one spirit, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. And that unity includes spiritual gifts. We're called to practice spiritual gifts that we've been given by God to one another. Well, now Paul, in this part of chapter 4, shifts and he says that not only out of your new Christian identity are you called to pursue unity, you're also now called to pursue purity. You're called to pursue holiness and righteousness in Jesus Christ. You know, a famous missionary is Adoniram Judson. He's one of the first missionaries ever sent out from the United States. Judson was raised as the son of a pastor and the grandson of a businessman. He was well off, uh, generally speaking, growing up, and he ended up going to college in Rhode Island. I learned this story from reading my kids. I don't know if you've ever seen these. They're these YWAM missionary biographies. If you haven't ever seen them, they're really, really good. They're really good for adults, too. And we're not like uber faithful with like having family worship all the time. But when our kids were little and we got a chance to read them, these YWAM biographies, little tiny biographies, they were so encouraging. And I remember reading this one night to to my kids and it really struck me that Judson was raised in this Christian home. He went off to college in Rhode Island and he became best friends with a guy named Jacob who was a deist. And Jacob was very convincing. He was a brilliant guy and convinced Judson of deism, which has become basically ubiquitous in American society, and that God is this clockmaker. He's this distant figure who set up the world, but now he's not actually involved in the world on a day-in, day-out basis. God created you, but God doesn't really love you, doesn't really care about you, and it's basically up to you to make the most out of whatever you've got. And so that was very deeply um, impressionable upon Judson as a young man. And, And Judson, Adoniram Judson, believed Jacob, and he became a deist functionally. And he walked away from a true Christian faith that he'd been raised in where God loved him, was interested in his life, showed him mercy. And so in this, Judson became very self-centered. It's really the only other option. I mean, you you either are God-centered or you're trying to figure out, well, if it's up to me, what's going to make me happy? And for Judson, it was success. It was money. And Adonai Judson started to pursue wealth. He started trying to put into whatever he could in his life into that God-shaped void that would make him happy. And one day, one time in his life, his pursuits of money and wealth and prestige and power led him out west. And as he was traveling out west, he was in a hostel, and he was sleeping. And the man next to him, his, he was really frustrated that he had to share a room with someone. He was a pretty well-off guy. And they divided the room with a sheet. And so there was a sheet pulled between him and this other man. And this other man, all night long, was gasping for air. And Judson had become so committed to deism that he didn't even care about this guy. He's like, God doesn't care about me. Why should I care about other people? And this guy coughed and coughed and gasped. And eventually he fell asleep, and Judson went to sleep. Well, Judson woke up the next morning and asked the front desk keeper what became of the man that was sleeping next to him. And he learned that he had died. He had died in the night, and he asked what the man's name was, and and it was Jacob, his friend from college, that was sleeping next to him, also pursuing a life of filling his life with whatever he could 
And that moment was Judson's turning point. He realized that to to pursue a life without God, without mercy, without an active God in the world that cares about people is just, is awful. And he, he repented and he began to embrace again true Christianity, this idea that the Lord loves us and created us and is merciful and calls us to show mercy. And eventually, he and his family moved to Burma and became missionaries, some of the first missionaries ever sent out from the U.S. My point is this, that whatever you believe about God theologically matters. It matters a great deal. If you believe that God is, he loves you and is invested in you and cares for you, it matters, and it will change your life. But if you don't, and you just sort of believe God's out there somewhere, or maybe there's not even a God, and it's really up to you, then that matters too, and that will deeply impact your life. This passage this morning, Paul is taking a front door approach. He's not going through the side door or the back door. He's taking a front door approach, and he's saying, if you are going to live like, if you are a Christian, if you have a new identity in Christ, and you do, then you need to live like a Christian. And he's saying, if you do not have that new identity in Christ, and you are what he would call a, a pagan, and I'll explain what I mean by that term. I don't love that term, but I'll explain why I use it in just a minute. Then you should live like a pagan. But basically, your identity and who you are impacts what you do. It must impact what you do. And so Paul is just saying directly here, Christians, you can no longer live like you used to live. As a new creation in Christ, you are called to practice your faith, practice a God who loves you, live in light of that. And by the end, we'll talk about what that looks like in real time in our lives. But first of all, this morning, Paul goes into, in the first section, living the pagan life. Now, I use the word pagan here, not derogatorily, but just descriptively. And what I mean by that is just this. A pagan person lives as if they are at the center of their world. They live not as if they don't believe in God, or maybe they do, maybe he's this distant clockmaker figure. But essentially, the, the pagan person wakes up with the self at the center and thinks, I get to determine what's true, I get to decide what I believe, and based on that, I'm going to pursue whatever I can find to fill myself up with satisfaction. Whatever, that, whatever my sensibilities lead me to, that is the person that Paul describes in the first section. He's saying for, for a Christian, though, we can't have a middling, lukewarm, halfway pagan or halfway Christian existence. We are called to see ourselves as being either a pagan or a Christian. It reminds me of the, the Johnny Cash song, Walk the Line. Johnny Cash uh, was, you know, I, lo- I love that song. It was his first number one hit. And Johnny Cash got married uh, to June Carter. And it, the story goes that he walked backstage one day and this song just hit him. And he wrote it backstage after a concert that he can no longer live like he used to live because he's married now. He's married to June Carter and he loves her. And he had been this crazy man. And he realizes now he's got to walk the line. And so what Paul is saying is that, yes, as a Christian, if you're no longer a pagan, you're called to really walk with Christ. But in order to do that, what he does is he sets the Christian life against the dark backdrop. As if you're going to, when you go buy a diamond, any good gemologist, what he's going to do is he's going to take out this black velvet backdrop. And he's going to put the diamond against the backdrop. 
And it's only against the backdrop of the darkness that you can see the quality of the light. And so Paul, for just a minute, what he's going to do is he's going to paint the picture of the black backdrop, which is the backdrop that all of us came out of before we knew Jesus Christ and were called to walk with him. And he says this very emphatically in verse 1. In verse 1 of chapter 4, he says, I, therefore, prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling you which you've been called. And then in verse 17 here, he doubles down on it, and he says, Now, I am calling you in the same kind of way to, to follow Christ. He's saying, I, I am before the Lord commanding you to live this way. So Paul is really doubling down on his apostolic authority. This is not ambiguous. This is not like if you feel like it. This is Paul saying, if you're a Christian, you're called to live this way. And then he goes on to describe the Gentiles. And he says, the first thing that, that, that describes the Gentiles in general, and, and let me just say this real quick. I know this is kind of hard for us, okay? Like, because we know within, within the pagan world or within the world of the Gentiles, which we're all Gentiles here almost probably, um, there's a lot of diversity. Okay, so when we paint with broad strokes, like Paul does here, there's a lot about us that makes us feel uncomfortable. And I just want to acknowledge that, okay? Because there is a lot of diversity within those who don't follow Christ, and I get that. But just like you can describe the Christian life, you can describe the life without Christ, okay? So in saying this, Paul is not saying these sentences fully encompass every single description of all the Gentiles. He's saying that just like I can describe the Christian life to you, so I can contrast that with the life before Christ. Okay, and so Paul starts by saying, 17b, the first element of what the Gentiles are like is that they are futile in their minds. Futile in their minds. This word futile Carl Barth says, Paul describes the majority of the inhabitants in the Greco-Roman Empire. They aim with silly methods at a meaningless goal. So human beings have been given this brilliant, beautiful mind by God, and yet left on their own as they pursue knowledge outside of God, it only leads to futility. You see this even in some of the most brilliant minds that are, are out there in the world. And some of you, and a lot of you have brilliant minds. But without Christ, as we pursue our own understanding and our own brilliance, it, only le- it doesn't lead us to rest. It doesn't lead us to wholeness. In fact, some who are most voracious for truth and understanding find themselves most empty at the end of their pursuits. Because they make knowledge and the acquisition of knowledge an end in itself. And it doesn't satisfy them. It only leads to futility. And then he goes on. He says the next step in the progression is that they're darkened in their understanding. The futility futility of mind leads to darkness. It means that because they don't have the light of God, they're blacked out. They, they just can't see one, one person, Kyle Snodgrass, calls this a malfunction of the mind. And so even though their minds work properly because they don't have the right understanding of God, they can't see clearly and their minds are clouded with darkness. And then in verse 18 it says, they're alienated for, from life 
in God. And this goes back to chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, where, where Paul talks about that when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, we were alienated from God. And so this, this lack of, of knowledge about God and embracing the light of God, when we disconnect ourselves from that, the, the pagans or, or those without Christ are disconnected from or alienated from life in God. And you see that, you see that in Adoniram Judson's life where he grew up with a Christian worldview, but as he began to walk away from this biblical understanding of God who is rich in grace and mercy, he began to be alienated practically in his personal life from God. Paul goes on to, to continue this downward spiral. Now, since they are dark in their understanding and alienated from God, they have, they're callous and they've lost feeling. Now, this really resonates with me and my own story. Uh, there's a chapter in the Bible, Isaiah 59, which really describes what I felt like when I was about 20 years old is I was really, I was kind of like Adoniram Judson in a way, I guess, is that I had grown up with a Christian worldview, but I really was determined to find happiness and find pleasure, not fully, not fully pushing my chips in with God. I really wanted to be halfway. I wanted God, and I wanted other things as well that would make me happy. And in Isaiah 59, it describes that person as being like a blind man groping along the wall of a cave. And basically, in this understanding of callousness or losing sensitivity, I just, I had lost perspective on what actually would make me whole. I was trying my darndest to find it. I was looking everywhere, and I was plugging in whatever I could find that would make me feel adequate, satisfied, whole. And during that process, it, it led me to, to depression, anxiety, and eventually uh, it led me to, to God because I realized that no one else could satisfy me. But, but th- those who are pagans have lost feeling, they, even good things that God has created, like food or drink or love or sex or money or beauty or, or impact in the world. If you seek that thing, as an ultimate thing, as something you say, I will serve you beauty, I will serve you popularity, I will serve you love, impact, and I will serve you if you'll give me what I've always wanted. And the end of that is futility. The end of that is is deep unhappiness. The end of that is that you still feel, and you feel worse than before because you realize now there's this one more thing that didn't work. And so in that, if we pursue good things and make them ultimate things, then they become idols and they become destructive to us. And we lose perspective. And then in the, la- the final description there, which I've already gone into a little bit, it says they've given themselves over to sensuality, greed, impurity. And un- unfortunately for the rich and famous of our times, their exploits are paraded for us on social media, which is what they want. But we also get to see what happens when you have quasi-unlimited wealth and power and fame, and you use all of that to invest in yourself and your own glory. And we see people just regularly that we look up to and love their music and love their movies and love something about them. They just, they just implode because they, they think, oh, I have all these resources now. I'm just going to invest it in my own happiness 
And it's just, it's very sad to watch what happens with that. And, and all of us, to a lesser extent, if we're, if we're living outside of Christ, we have that same bent. It, whatever resources we have, we think, oh man, if I just use this for my own pleasure and it just doesn't work out, we only find futility at the end of it all. Here in Ephesians 4, the word says, they have given themselves over. And so Paul in this section It's a bit of a contrast to Romans 1 where it says that God gave them over. So there definitely is a a God element to this and what is happening. But in Ephesians 4, Paul is emphasizing that you are the decision maker. That that you, as a person without Christ, make volitional decisions to give yourself over to what does not satisfy you. And that is a reality It's a futile mind, darkness, alienation, a callous soul, and feeding that soul with sensual pleasures. Now, I know many of you have family members, loved ones, and friends. As I'm giving this description, you you see them in this, and you see yourself in this as well, your your former self. (laughs) And yet, when you think about your friends and your family members and your children and your parents, you're filled with, with compassion. That's, that's what we should, we should be filled with compassion. We should not be throwing stones like some politicians do at people who do not know the Lord, at people who are making functional decisions out of a futile mind and out of spiritual darkness. We should not throw stones. The only reason why we're any different than those who are pagans is because God, who is rich in mercy, Ephesians 2, 4, but God, who is rich in mercy, showed us love and grace in Jesus Christ. One way to be transformed. And we have an amazing opportunity. As you go into Thanksgiving, into Christmas, and you're going to see family, we have an amazing opportunity to be the light of Christ, to be the gracious, loving light of Christ. For those, I mean, to be in this situation that's been described in verses 17 through 19, and if you think about your own story, it is not a happy place to be. But yet it is where they are. And so let us love them well. And in order to love these people well who do not yet know the Lord, the best way to do that is to live out of your new identity in Jesus Christ, which is where he goes next. It's not just to say the words of grace, which I appreciate Nat talking about, that yes, we're supposed to have a personal faith, we're also supposed to have a public faith. But it's not just saying words when you get a chance, it's being a new creation which can be very hard when you're being challenged by your family members, when you're being challenged by dynamics in your friend group at work. Very challenging. And yet, we're called to live for Jesus Christ. We're called to live the Christian life. So the first point was living the pagan life. Now let's talk about what it means to live the Christian life. To live the Christian life. Well, Paul is clearly saying here, You became a Christian, and it is a completed action in the past. That verb tense in Greek, aorist, that is a finished action. It's done. So you are a Christian. You are no longer a pagan. Even if you have, and we'll talk about this in a minute, kind of the wrestling that goes on inside, your identity as a Christian is set. It is fixed. You are in Christ. You are a new creation And our identity now has totally changed. Paul paints the Christian life here as the direct answer 
to the pagan life. The direct contrast to the pagan life. And he says, first of all, just as he started with, the problem happens at first in the mind of the unbeliever, that they are not understanding the knowledge of God. They're darkened in their minds. He starts with, learning how to live the Christian life starts with the Christian life being, he describes it as a school. There are three pictures here, actually. He describes living the Christian life as a school. He describes it as having a new set of clothes. And he describes it as being a new creation. Okay, we're going to start with it being a school. So if you're going to be in Christ, if you're going to live as a new creation, you need to be in the school of Christ. And he says that in verse 20, he says right off the bat, that is not the way you learned Christ. Now, learning Christ, putting Christ, putting a person's name after that sentence, you have learned, fill in the blank, Christ. Normally, you would think that sentence would be completed with a subject or an idea. But to fill in the blank with a person, you have learned Christ. Commentators say that this is unprecedented in Greek. It's not, in, it's not common in any other Greek literature of the time. It's not in the Bible anywhere else. To learn a person who is the object of our faith is so important. I've been covering this throughout the series. But Jesus Christ is not the crucifixion. He is not the resurrection. He is not the ascension. He is not the atonement. He is Jesus Christ. And in those moments, in those events, his life for us and our theology about him is clarified and defined. But we follow a person. Our, our theology is about a person. We learn Christ, Christ himself. He is the center of everything that we do. We learn Christ. And the word Christ being used there is very significant instead of Jesus, okay? So Jesus, when Jesus is used, it's Paul's very intentional. Jesus means the historical person who walked the earth in the ancient Near East. Very important understanding of Jesus. Christ means the anointed one, the Lord. So when he says you have learned Christ, he's not just saying you've learned about this person who walked the earth. He's saying you've learned about your Lord. And so now your mind and your whole life has to be shaped underneath the lordship of Jesus. This is not just an intellectual exercise for us that can be disconnected from our personal lives. We're supposed to shape our life under his lordship. So first of all, we learn him. And then second of all, you, it says in verse 21, you heard him. You learn him and you hear him. Now this gets to going beyond just the mind. This gets into the existential. This gets into the heart. You have to hear Christ to know Christ. It's not merely understanding. You have to be transformed at the level of your soul and your person. You have to hear from Jesus Christ in the spirit. And this, again, is a contrast to the pagan life. As we learn Christ, we're not filled with darkness. Now we're filled with light. We're filled with light in Christ as he illuminates our heart. And we're filled with life. So we learn him, we hear him. And then in verse 21, it says, you were taught in him. You were taught in him. And this is fascinating. Because in the first part, it says we learn Christ, that's our minds. In the second part, it says you hear Christ, that's your heart, your existential life. 
But now it says you are taught in Christ. Now this is talking about the situation or the context of your life. Paul's talking about how school should happen. If we could have a perfect Christian school, which I haven't found one yet, but if we had a perfect Christian school, this is what it would look like. It would look like learning Christ. It would look like hearing Christ in the heart. And it would look like being in a context or a situation where the the community is so shaped by the grace of the gospel that we are experiencing the reality of Christ in community, in the context. And so you have the mind, you have the heart, and you have the context. And when you have a school like that where it's all working together and it's all being fueled around Christ, this is how we learn to live the Christian life. And we can say also this, when in the church or when in the Christian community, only the mind is emphasized to the detriment of the heart or the situation, we have a more difficult time learning Christ. When only personal transformation is emphasized, the existential, but not theology and not the circumstances, we have a difficult time learning Christ. When everybody's just concerned about making the world a better place, but we disconnect that making the world a better place from Jesus and from our hearts changing, we don't learn Christ very well. This is a spiral, and Paul is painting a picture of the Christian spiral of school where normative head, existential heart, and situational The context all should be shaped under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, we're not going to find anything perfect like that on this side of heaven, but we need to be striving for this in the church, that we can be a school for Jesus Christ. But Paul also describes it as being a new set of clothes, a new set of clothes. Um, It's a really awesome story. Uh, One commentary I've been reading for this series, a guy named Tony Merida writes it. And he and his wife adopted four children from an orphanage uh, somewhere. He didn't go into where. But as they were picking up the children, it was this long process, right? And on the day that they received these four children at one time, I mean, that's an unbelievable uh, sacrifice and, and commitment. Four kids at one time, the orphanage had a policy that the children cannot leave the orphanage with their orphan clothes on. They wanted to keep the clothes. So part of the policy was that the parents had to bring clothes for the children so that the day they left the orphanage they had to be dressed in in not necessarily new clothes but not their clothes and so of course parents are just so excited you know they've got this outfit picked out and they're ready to go and and they get all these four kids just dapped out in their new outfits and they it's this emphatic picture of this new identity that you've been given in this family the Merida family has now corresponded to these new clothes that you're wearing. This is a very Christian picture of what God has done for us. I'm trying to get you to understand this new identity that we have in Christ. When you read Revelation and you read about us worshiping God in white robes, that's intentional. In God's mind, in God's view, you are now clothed in a white robe if you are in Christ. You are different. You look different to him. You're clothed in his clothes. You're in this school, yeah, you're learning, but no, I mean, your identity is set, and you are in Christ. This happens when we're saved by grace. This imagery is very intentional. So now the daily task for us, this is very important, it's not to obtain a new nature. It is to live according to your new nature. You don't live the Christian life so that you'll be different. You live the Christian life because you're different. The identity has to be set. 
Paul goes back into this. Ephesians and Romans mirror each other a lot. In, in Romans 6 through 8, if you go through there, Paul really gets at Christian identity and how it's supposed to impact our lives. And in Romans 6, verse 11, Paul talks about you need to consider yourself or to count yourself dead to sin, but alive to Jesus Christ. You have to get to the point where your own accounting of yourself changes and you see yourself as a new creation. You see yourself with those new clothes on in Christ Jesus. Paul says here back in Ephesians 4 that the old self belongs to the old former manner of life. The old self is corrupt through deceitful desires, but we are to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. Again, this takes me to Romans 12 where Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. He says, Do not be conformed by the patterns of this world, but be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Then you'll be able to know what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And so what that means is we have to be transformed first in our minds and who we understand ourselves to be. You're not going to offer your body as a living sacrifice for someone if you don't already believe that you have their love, that that you can lose nothing. You've gained everything. You have who you need. You have Christ. And now as you're transformed in your minds and you're renewed in the spirit of your minds, you learn to live as a new creation. You learn to live in light of God's mercy as Adoniram Judson did. You learn that it takes intentional, mental, spiritual, emotional, and psychological effort to put on the new clothes of Christ. So, what Paul is saying here, when you, whenever you, when you change an outfit, even though it's not that hard to do, uh, but you still, it takes intention. You, you don't just all of a sudden find yourself in new clothes. There is a moment, a volitional act, where you say, I'm going to change my outfit. And that happened for you in Christ. And so for us, we have to be regularly saying no to the old man or the old woman and yes to the new man or the new woman. In just a second, I'll get really practical with what that looks like. So we're, we're in a new school, we have new clothes, and we're a new creation. We're a new creation. This is a very important image that Paul talks about here and also in Colossians a lot. The idea here is that if you're a new creation, you can't give birth to yourself, right? And that's just totally ludicrous. You can't, it's impossible to birth yourself. That's what everyone's trying to do. They're trying to give themselves a rebirth. They're trying to, to plug something into their life that will, reborn, that will make them reborn. But what's happened to us in Christ is we have been reborn by Jesus Christ. We have a new identity. We are a new creation recreated by God for purity, righteousness, and holiness. And this is such good news, such good news. And in the next, actually my next sermon in the Ephesians series will be, I think, on January the 9th. So... It's going to be a little while before we get into the practical application here. Um, But as he goes on in this chapter, Paul gets really practical. Okay, so pursuing purity and holiness and righteousness, it means like real, real change has to happen in your life. Okay, but before we get into that, I'm going to close with, with this. How do we live the Christian life in real time? What does it look like for us to say no to sin, 
to take off the old clothes and to put on the new clothes and to say yes to God in real time. Well, our youth right now are going through a book called The Gospel-Centered Life for Teens. And in that book, it uses a picture, which you may have seen before. It's a great picture. It's used by RUF a lot and other ministries. And basically, it shows the picture of a cross or the grace of God growing in your life over time. If we were indoors and I had some multimedia, I'd totally show you the picture. But I'm going to paint it for you in your mind, okay? And in the picture, the cross, the person is here, and the cross grows bigger over time. The way the cross grows bigger for us over time and not smaller is as we understand how great God is and how amazing his love is for us and how righteous and pure and whole he is, In contrast to him, we see like Isaiah in chapter 6 that we are broken. We are needy. We are sinners. And we see our sin. And as you grow as a Christian, you grow in seeing how great God is, and you grow in seeing how much you need God. And in that juxtaposition of how great God is and how much you need God, over time, the longer you walk with Christ, the bigger the cross gets, the bigger grace becomes. A picture of the Christian life is not needing God's grace less and less. It's not needing to ask for forgiveness less and less. It's needing God more and more. It's needing God's grace more and more. It's by the end of our Christian lives, we just can't believe ever, even more than ever before, that we ever receive God's mercy. It's unbelievable. Now, we can minimize our experience of our own sin by self-justification, making excuses, just saying, well, everybody does that, whatever, you know? We can also minimize our view of God by not really spending time with him and not really understanding who he is. But if we can be honest about our sin and honest about God is, the cross will grow. And practically speaking, what ends up happening in that dynamic is this. As we recognize our sin, we are called to repent. We're called to repent. That's putting off the old man. Repentance is just agreeing with the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, you're right. Word of God, you're right about me. You paint a true picture of who I am. I need you. I'm desperate. And so we repent. And y'all, that's so important. Our practice of daily and regular repentance is, is so core to who we are as Christians. As we see our sin, perhaps maybe instead of responding in kindness to your spouse, you react in anger. You need to say, God, you're right about me. I, I was wrong. Or perhaps we, we, we go off on our parents or our kids. Instead of being patient, we need to say we're, we're sorry for that. Perhaps, once again, uh, maybe you look at that picture online that you have been struggling to stop looking at, and instead of just saying, you know what, I'm going to do better next time, instead you turn to Christ and say, God, please continue to transform me. I'm sorry for what I've, I've done. And, and these, if you continue to, to find that you, you feel like you need more wealth and, and more power in order to be happy, and you recognize that, and God calls that out in you, you repent and you turn to Christ. And I love how our service began today in 1 John 1. The next verse is, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just, and he forgives our sins. He cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And so we, we repent. That's the first step in the gospel dance. It's a waltz. It's a three-step. We repent. Then we believe. We believe. We have to believe the gospel. You have to believe the gospel. Sinclair Ferguson talks about that. When you, you need to take, he says, two looks at your sin, meaning the surface sin, like what happened and then why it happened. Take two looks at your sin, and then Sinclair Ferguson says, take ten looks at the cross. 
10 looks at the cross. How big is the ratio for you and how much you think about your own failures to God's grace? Is it a five to one ratio? Do you think about God's love for you five to one to your, to your failures? How many of us are living with a five to one grace to, to thinking about our sin ratio? That's not true in my life. We need to be not just repenting, but believing. Believing. What has God done? Who has he said? Who is Jesus Christ? What has he done for us? We're, he is rich in mercy. And so you repent and then you believe. But one problem that we can get into is that you can get into what some people have called like gospel ping pong, where it's like, I sinned, I'm sorry, thank you, God. I sinned, I'm sorry, thank you, God. And it becomes this very internal dynamic in our relationship with God, where the third step in the waltz is that we repent and we believe, but then we go fight. We go fight the good fight of faith. We step out. We take risks. We follow Christ. We use our spiritual gifts. We move out. You weren't created to play gospel ping pong. God, I'm, I sin. I'm sorry. Forgive me. I'm sin. I'm sorry. Forgive me. That's great. Yeah, that should totally be a part of your life. But you were created to say, God, I need you. I thank you for your grace. Now help me to live according to that grace in my life. You go out and you practice the gospel. And it's in that transformative waltz, that dance of grace that we grow. That's how you put off the old man and put on the new man. You repent, you believe, and you fight. Some people will say, I can't fight because I'm just so messed up. God can never use somebody like me. I need to spend all my time repenting and believing. I disagree. I disagree. If you don't get out of your own way, you won't grow. If you don't get out of your own way, if you don't get out of your own head and your own heart, you won't grow. You were created Going back earlier to the school, you were created to know Christ, you are created to be transformed by Christ, and you were created to be in a context that is impacted and influenced by Christ. You need to move out. Move out in your Christian life, and you move out in purity and righteousness and holiness. Going back to the story at the beginning, when Judson left a biblical faith, it changed his life for the worse. If you leave a biblical faith, a biblical understanding of the grace of God, that you're called to repent and believe and fight the good fight because God is rich in mercy, if you go away from that, it will have a detrimental impact in your life. But if you, like Judson, will have a moment, many moments, where you will recognize the grace of God is true. And he does call us in his mercy to live the Christian life, to follow him, to live as a new creation, then I get very excited about seeing what God will continue to do in me and in you for his glory. Let's pray. Lord, I just pray you teach us to follow you in our real practical lives. Lord, help us to put this together in real time. Lord, that's what we want. We're here today. We're here because we love you and we we've been called to follow you. Lord, we recognize that sometimes we meander in our thinking and we get really wishy-washy about who you are and what you've done for us in Christ. I pray that you would clear that up in our minds, that we are a new creation. And I pray that out of that new creation life that we would love. I pray we would love our neighbors. I thank you for this opportunity with the Afghan refugees to be able to serve them. I pray we'd be able to serve them. I pray for the opportunities we're going to have across the dinner tables at Thanksgiving and over Christmas. I pray that you would enable us 
not just to speak grace, but to be the grace of God for those who need it. Lord, we're asking you to change us. We're asking you to transform us. Lord, we need you. And we thank you that when we come to you, you are faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Propel us outward from here, we pray in Jesus' name.